This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Here it is, Jerry. It is opening day. It is our first opening day wheelhouse podcast. How are you feeling? This is a big day for everybody, I would have to think, especially for a general manager. Uh, exciting day. I love opening day. It's uh, it, Everything's fresh on opening day. You're, you're, it, everybody has the hope of doing something greater than they might think, including the mayor. So I, here we are. It's a, it's a tough one for us with the Indians, but uh, you know, this is why you show up to play the best teams. When I was thinking about a general manager's role on opening day, of course, you blood, sweat, and tears all winter long through spring training. Obviously, more roster moves even in the final days of spring training, bringing new faces in, which we'll talk about. And now here it's kind of like you give the keys to the car to Scott, and do you just sit back today and watch? How involved are you with uh, personnel, let's put it that way, on opening day? Uh, not at all, really. I mean, the, the lineup, we've talked about it until we're blue in the face. We have many sit-downs through the offseason and spring training to determine what we were looking for or gauging with our 25-man roster and then generally how we saw them lining up the way we would use our bullpen, the way we would use our rotation. And truly, since the early days in spring training, this is just an exercise in getting to this day. And, you know, a couple tweaks along the way, not the least of which is our left fielder, but you, know, <laughs> you, you, you make the adjustments as you go. But we've communicated pretty openly. Now it's entirely up to Scott and the staff, the, the direction they choose. You bring up each row. There was some question as to whether or not his calf would be good to go to be on the opening day roster if he'd have to begin the season on the DL. Obviously, the workouts he went through here at Safeco, Came out great. Yeah, and you know, and even the last couple of days down in Peoria, he he showed up a lot better. He was moving around a lot better. I will say this, that yesterday's batting practice at our workout here at Safeco was by far the best we've seen him swing the bat. Uh, he was spraying line drives around everywhere, looked quite normal, and you know, it, it, far be it from us to, to assess where Ichiro is with the bat. You know, During the course of the spring, there were days where it didn't look great, where he's trying to find his timing, but he showed up yesterday, and it sure looked like vintage Ichiro during BP, so I'm really looking forward to his game ABs. Obviously, a limited number of actual Cactus League at-bats, but we know that he was on the backfields going back and forth, getting a lot of extra ABs there. Do you feel like he had enough looks, enough at-bats, enough plate appearances in the springtime to be ready? Uh, we're, we're really judging this on, on Ichiro and what he tells us he needs, but obviously the calf got in the way, the late signing. He came into spring training. While he only got 10, I believe, 10 plate appearances and, and A games, you know, Cactus League games, he probably got a close to another 15 or 20 in minor league games. So, you know, when it all comes out in the wash, you'd like to see guys get somewhere between 50 and 75 to be ready for the season. He was well short of that. But we're just going to bank on the last 20-plus years as, <laughs> as being enough to get him over the hump. And 3,000-some hits. That would make sense. Well, we obviously have a lot to talk about. One of the most exciting days on the calendar all year long. But first, I need to hear about the drive back 
from Peoria to Seattle. How did it go? Uh, it was long. It was long. We had a couple of stops along the way. We rerouted our took a, took a little bit of a, an off the beaten path type of direction to get here. Stopped in uh, Monterey to watch my son play. He and the, the UCSD Tritons were were in Monterey for for a weekend series. And we were able to stop along the way. And in addition to seeing him play, we got to stop along the way, a couple of Triple D spots, right in about about Guy Fieri's you know, stomping ground. Sure. We were in Monterey. And uh, on Sunday evening, we stopped at Monterey Fish House, which was spectacular. I had about the best Chipino that I've ever had. And uh, and then the next morning when we were scrambling for breakfast, Tammy pulled out the – the, the Google machine and fired up. She said, I think there's a AAA D place. It might take us 20 minutes to get there. I said, honey, you could have said two hours <laughs> and I was in. But we, we had, uh, you know, we added two more, two more stops to the, to the growing list of triple D spots. So she as is as invested in this lifelong quest of triple D dining as you are, it sounds like, or at uh, least close enough. Well, I think to be fair, she's invested in my happiness <laughs> <laughs> and she knows this, uh, this is along the way helps, but no, she's, she watches the, the show with me. She enjoys it. She likes checking them off the box. And, and, uh, you know, I, I think the, the spot we stopped on Monday morning when we were the, the day we were leaving Monterey, we stopped at Lulu's griddle in the middle, which was, I mean, out on the, the working pier in Fisherman's Wharf in Monterey, and it was, I mean, it is, you hear the seals in the background, you, you smell, you know, it, it, it smelled like it was legit fish just coming in <laughs> off the, the pier, and it could not have been better. The, the breakfast was spectacular, and there was a line, I would say, shortly after we got there, there was people waiting an hour and a half to get in for breakfast, which I thought was telling. Sweet or savory breakfast? I went savory. I, I did go with the savory, the griddle with chorizo and, you know, some, some uh, pico de gallo. With scrambled eggs and and a sourdough toast, with a very crispy bacon on the side. That I will say, you know, somewhere about three hours north of that, I was regretting all of the breakfast, but I, I enjoyed it while it happened. You know, who's a huge breakfast guy on the team uh, is Ben Gamble. Especially, he's a Benedict man. So uh, if you and uh, Ben ever find yourselves looking for a breakfast someplace, he seems like he he might know a spot or two around the league. Not that you don't. In addition to being a Benedict and breakfast man, Ben Gamble is proving to be a superhuman recovery guy because he is he is bouncing back quite well from his oblique and and what we thought was going to be maybe a mid Mayish type return for Ben Gamble at the major league level is progressing to the point where he's going to hit live off Erasmo of Ramirez in a simulated game today, and both are on track to, to line up with the Coma Rainiers to start the season really? and rehab assignments, which is great for us. Must be all that holidays is what you're saying. It could be. It could, in fact, be. The, 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 who knew? Well, Gamble, I mean, he could, he could spare to add a pound or two, right? When you're that shredded, you, you add five pounds of fat, and it's going to be okay probably. But we've discussed this before. A little layer of fat would be so good to try to prevent injury. And in Ben's case, he's probably as low on the meter as anybody down there. And, you know, sans Ichiro. And the fact that he's been able to bounce back from this is, is uh, this quickly seems amazing to me. And, and, you know, fingers crossed he comes across the bridge in April because we're looking forward to it. That's incredible news. Very good news. We'll definitely uh, want to keep up to date on that. The King up on the mound today. It is not very often, Jerry, as you know, that we have seen Felix actually pitch opening day at his home ballpark. Second time in 10 years that the Mariners have opened up truly at home. His 10th consecutive opening day start. It's absolutely incredible. But obviously this was in jeopardy 
because of being hit by the line drive and because Scott even said right before camp began that he was not necessarily anointed the opening day starter. You saw him twice on a Cactus League mound, a varsity mound of the Cactus League. What all went into the decision and how do you feel about Felix going tonight? I uh, really feel excited about Felix going. You know, it's, Felix has a history here. He has a history in this organization. And, and frankly, I didn't know this. As baseball buffy as I can sometimes be, I, I did not realize that it had only been seven pitchers in Major League history to make 10 consecutive opening day starts for a team. That's uh, – he deserves it, and and frankly, I thought he pitched very well in the spring. He did a lot of things that were very positive, although you only saw them twice in, in varsity games, like you mentioned. But we saw them in the backfields. We saw a, an excellent outing against the Padres minor leaguers, uh, some minor leaguers, some big leaguers getting extra ABs uh, in, a, in a morning game over in Peoria. Threw the ball very well. We're seeing physically uh, the same, if not uh, – it's very similar stuff to what we saw in 2016 with more of the velocity that we saw in 2017. So the combination of all the good things that, that we've seen from Felix in the last couple of years and, and frankly, an approach that is just a little different than what it's been in the last couple of years. And, and talking to Felix, seeing the look in his face, he looks fresh, he looks ready to go. As I've said all spring long, he looks engaged. And yesterday when I, when I saw him, he is genuinely excited for this start. And, you know, if, if for nothing else, it creates a good vibe for us and, and a nice bounce point to get into the season. And I think the team's pretty fired up. You mentioned a different approach. After his final start in the springtime in Peoria, he said to the press afterwards that he and Mike, and it sounds like Mel as well, no doubt Scott's looped in on this too, have talked about, Maybe not pitching with 100% effort. And Zanino's saying, hey, if you go 85%, that's going to be good enough, especially with the added movement you'll be able to see on your pitches. And we saw some curveballs, Jerry, from Felix in that final start that were noticeably slower than his normal curveball, which is an incredibly underrated pitch from Felix. Is that what you're referring to, or is it something else with his approach? I think it's hilarious that Felix has an incredibly underrated pitch after all these years. Well, nobody, ta- but true. nobody talks about the curveball. They only yeah. talk about the changeup. And the, and the curveball is every bit of well above average in today's time. It's, a, it's an excellent pitch, and we've urged him to, to use it more and to use it creatively. And I know Mike Zanino has been, has been very engaged with Felix in that, that way as well, talking about pitch, pitch usage and, and sequencing. And Felix is doing it. It's not something that he has done historically. He was a power pitcher who had a power fastball and used a power changeup. And when he threw his curveball, it was intended to be a power curveball. Now he's, now he's changing speeds. He's working a little differently. The pace of play, you know, small alterations to his delivery to create some level of deception. You know, fast and slow works in the game. And, and Felix is starting to embrace some of the different ways that he can create more chaos on the mound rather than just the, the action of his ball, you know, meaning his baseball and, and his hand. And, and I think that by itself is a positive thing that he is thinking as creatively as he is he is incredibly experienced he's got all the success to lean back on now it's using his pitching acumen and and we all know he has it it's just putting it in play Marco Gonzalez was talking earlier this year about the idea of even if you take in his case a mile per hour off of his sinker how much more additional movement he can get on that pitch is it sounds so easy is that a difficult thing to do as we're talking about Felix doing some of that and for any pitcher. 
incredibly difficult. You know, it's a, one of the toughest things I think to do in baseball is intentionally change the speeds on your fastball. It requires great feel, you know, and and frankly, it re- requires a little bit of guts. When you are used to throwing the ball 94 miles an hour and rushing it through the zone, to intentionally step back and throw a ball 87 miles an hour feels unnatural. You know, and in Felix's case, it, in order, I guess, in in the effort to change speed on his fastball, he also has to be willing to change speeds on his changeup, which is equally, if not harder. Uh, it is really hard to do. And Felix has that power changeup. And oftentimes he'll throw a fastball that's 91, and he'll throw a changeup that's 87. And they've got great action, but if he can create more separation between the pitches, it creates so much deception, so much more dive to the, to the ball. And as a result, it's much harder for the hitter to hit. I, a quick little quirky story. Zach Greinke, who, you know, a great pitcher in his own right, I, I guess uh, I, on some level, along with Felix, Justin Verlander, Clayton Kershaw, among the best pitchers of the last decade, uh, Zach Greinke once went out as a Kansas City Royal with the intent to throw a pitch that hit each of the, the miles per hour on the scoreboard gun from 65 to 95. And, and that's, that's how he you know, played the mental game with himself during the course of the game. And you could occasionally see him turning around and looking at the board, almost almost mentally checking off, all right, got that one. <laughs> and he, he threw a 65-mile-an-hour curveball, a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, and virtually everything else in between. And it was fascinating to watch the feel. Felix has that kind of feel. He's just never incorporated it in a major league game. And, you know, he's, he's always gone out there with a power mentality. And I think you're going to see a little different version of Felix – but I don't think you're going to see a guy who's not inclined to pitch for power because for all the, the criticism and questions that Felix has fielded over the course of the last two years, he still maintains a very healthy strikeout rate despite the diminished velocity over the last three or four years. No one ever throws 95 miles an hour forever, but he's figured out a way to make that a successful recipe. Now we just have to take the ball every fifth day. And if he does that, we're all going to be successful. We've talked about Ichiro, obviously Felix as well, Robinson Cano. Felix is carving out a path to Cooperstown. Robbie, I think it's safe to say, is there already. Ichiro, out of the three, is 100% there already. It's hard to think, Jerry, of the 29 other teams, how many of them have three players on their opening day roster where you could say, yeah, they're all going to be in Cooperstown one day. Now, some might debate Felix after the last couple of seasons. Uh, he still has a chance, certainly, to kind of rebuild from that. But that's pretty impressive, isn't it? I mean, that's amazing when you think about it. Truly amazing. You know, four if you count Andrew Romine, who, you know, <laughs> the, the quirky play nine positions. Well, I'm, sure, a, yeah, I'm sure that the glove is probably in Cooperstown or something, right? Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story about Cooperstown in a moment. But uh, the three future Hall of Famers, I think it's it, it's about a slam dunk. And, and, you know, Felix is 32 years old this year. It's it, we, We've still got time for Felix to build up that kind of or finish off what appears to be a Hall of Fame resume. As you said, Cano and Ichiro, they're, they're sliding in as soon as their five years waiting period is up. The rest of this team, I said it to Scott yesterday, we're standing at the, the, batter's, gate, the batter's turtle watching BP and D. Gordon sitting. And, and I said, D. Gordon, batting champ, you know, as he's, taken, as he's taken his BP. 
batting champ, gold glover, all-star twice. I said, just spin around our roster and think of all the accolades that our players, from Ichiro and Felix and Cano to Nelson Cruz, D. Gordon, and the like, yeah, even guys who aren't active on the roster right now like Kuma, the accolades that they have, have built up over the course of their career, it's an unbelievable team in that regard. It's, it's fun to watch. I can't say we're at the top of anybody's Vegas board for, for Hall or, or World Series favorites, we are some kind of talented group with a lot of cachet in the game. And, and that's something that's fun to, to experience day in, day out in the pregame. They know how to prepare. Uh, Andrew Romine will be in the Hall of Fame for that quirky little, you know, I guess, piece of action. I think I told this story once before. If not on air, I, I've told it, you know, in, in closed quarters. But years back, my son, who's now a college player, he's a junior at UC San Diego, uh, he was playing in a in an amateur uh, youth tournament in Cooperstown, New York. They they put on this phenomenal weekly program at, in Cooperstown, where 110 teams from around the the country, in some cases outside the U.S., show up and play off in a bracket style routine. And then, and it's fantastic to watch. They play two, sometimes three games a day, at a facility in Cooperstown that is almost its own field of dreams. It's it's fantastic, and. When Jonah was, was playing there as a 12-year-old, we went on the, the backdoor tour of the Hall of Fame as a favor of Jeff Idelson and the great people in Cooperstown. And, and they took us on this tour with Jonah's team, and, and we toured the Hall of Fame, the last stop of which was, was the top floor where they keep a locker that, that is designated in, I guess, an homage to, to each of the 30 teams in Major League Baseball with some relics of their history and memorabilia, et cetera. And at, we stopped along the, the road, and at the Rockies locker, which was one of the last lockers, there was a game card in there from a game in which we scored one run in each inning of a game, which, is, which, which had never happened before. So we, we looked at the card, and my name was, was on the card just because I was on the team. It was a, <laughs> my name was on the card. And my, my son, with the, the Little League team in back of him, starts welling up, looks at me, and he said, you're in the Hall of Fame. And I, and I said, that's right, dude. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. I think that the, I think the one run in every inning happened like two years ago with the Marlins and somebody. But, yeah, the last time that it happened before that was your Rockies. Yeah, in the 90s in Chicago. We were at Wrigley Field. Hey, gets you to Cooperstown. And for those who aren't, we've kind of danced around it. But for Romine, he became, I believe, the fourth or fifth player in Major League history to play all nine innings or excuse me, play all nine positions in one game. And uh, when you think about that feat, you know, most of the time it's been for a, a pu- publicity stunt. And for him, it was kind of like the Tigers were out of it. And Brad Osma said, why don't we give this a shot? And you know, the one batter that he got out, he had to pitch to one guy. He faced Miguel Sano. I mean, is there anybody else? Is there somebody else that I could face if I'm Andrew Romine? But he was, I think he got him to pop up or something. And Romine was at first base and recorded the final out, stepping on first base to end the game, which was pretty fitting, too, which is why he's now part of the Mariners, obviously. Clearly. Yeah. And, and we know if, in fact, Miguel Sano is uh, next week when we're up in Minnesota, <laughs> he comes to Bring the plate. Line. <laughs> We've got the Miguel Sano killer. Yeah. Or ready. if nothing else, spend a mound visit and have Romine come out there and at least talk to whoever the pitcher is and let him know exactly how to get this. He can be that guy, but that will be that will create further complications for Scott and the staff. So we got to be really careful with that. That's very true. Uh, hey, when you look at spring training for the Mariners, 
Daniel Vogelback, you can make the case just going off of numbers, which obviously in spring training, whether it's in Arizona or Florida, can mean somewhere between nothing to a general manager making a decision off of them. He had as good of a spring training as any hitter in the country. In fact, he had a, the best in many statistical categories. He forced your hand, didn't he? Without question. I, and, and sat down with him when we told him he made the club, and we told him you know, well ahead of time so that he had the satisfaction in knowing that what he did mattered. And he came into spring training truly as, a, as the dark horse, you know, and, and whether it was Ryan Healy who was brought in to play first base, it was Mike Ford who was Rule 5, and we had to determine whether we were going to keep him all season, and Daniel Vogelbach, who, and, and let's go back and revisit this, has been very good for us in Tacoma. We just not we haven't seen the, the real Daniel Vogelbach come up and do what he showed us he can do this spring. And he was phenomenal from the from the jump street, truly, in spring training. Just raking from the start. He's taken his walks. He controlled the strike zone. Of, uh, like you said, among the, the 30 major league clubs, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who did, did more, did more damage, and did it while controlling the strike zone in a similar way to what Bogey did. And we saw great improvements defensively, the way he ran the bases. I mean – I, cu- I couldn't tell if it was Daniel Vogelbach or D. Gordon out there some days. It was unbelievable. <laughs> so similar. Yeah, so, so similar. Uh, no, but Vogie deserved to make it. He did force the hand. And, you know, Scott and I sat down and talked with him and told him it's going to be a difficult juggling, uh, I guess, routine, trying to find ways to get him in there over these first couple of weeks. You know, we committed to Ryan Healy, and he's done nothing to change our minds about the kind of player we think he will be. But Vogie certainly made it a more interesting combination of events here and deserves the opportunity to get out there and play, and he'll get it. When we first started talking in spring training, there was obviously questions as to whether or not Healy's hand would be ready for this day, opening day. Were you pretty impressed by how quickly he was able to come back from this, the hand surgery? Well, I think it was two things. One, he went to the Ben Gamble School of Recovery. Uh, it, it was phenomenally quick, truly. Once he got through the, 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 the surgery and the early stage of, of gaining flexibility or flexion in his hand. And then two was, uh, Ryan Healy is a sharp fellow, matriculated at the University of Oregon. He saw what Daniel <laughs> Vogelbach was doing. Sure. And, and, you know, he got out there and started hitting. But... You know, Ryan hits the ball as hard as anybody, and truly anybody in the league short of Nelson Cruz. It's a, and it, it is line to line. He knows how to hit. And, you know, were he able to control the strike zone in a way that Daniel Vogelbach does, the two in combination would be phenomenal for us. But, you know, it, it's Healy can play first base. We saw that defensively. He's athletic over there. He can really throw. And he sprays line drives with real carry to, to all parts of the field. And you forget, they're both about the same age. You know, we, we look at Ryan Healy like we're deferring to the veteran by giving him the first base start. Ryan Healy has been in the big leagues for a year and a half. He's roughly about the same age as Daniel Vogelbach, slightly older. And, and, and what he's accomplished at the big league level is fairly significant in a short period of time. So we're excited about his recovery, about him getting out there, about having a pair of young first basemen who project to be here for the next six years. That's very encouraging for us. And really excited about the idea that we're getting mostly healthy here as we get ready for the tip-off. Is this finger okay? He took a one-hopper that looked like it got him in the chest, and then all of a sudden Rob Nodine came out and 
Healy was sucking on the tip of his finger, and we were hoping that it was still there. I think it was still there. I think it was just Rob trying to get a little TV time. <laughs> Show off his new goatee. Well, we're happy to see that Healy is okay. Let's talk about your bullpen. This bullpen has two faces in it here today on opening day that none of us really anticipated whatsoever. One of them we definitely did not see coming. Uh, the original winner of the Wade LeBlanc Award is back. Wade LeBlanc is back with the Mariners. Uh, the award that is given to the most out-of-nowhere pitcher to help save the Mariners' season. And, of course, Casey Lawrence, who had a spectacular spring. Can you tell us about both? Uh, you know, first I'll talk about Casey because he was with us all spring. And similar to Bogey, he did everything you could do to make a team. He commanded the ball. He created disruption with the way he used his delivery. I think in the early part of spring training, Casey, you know, we don't have a great history with Casey. He joined us last year as a waiver claim, spent much of his time with us in the big leagues out of necessity, and in some ways was trying to do something or trying to be someone he he wasn't. He was trying to throw harder. He was trying to impress a new team. This spring he came in and he just – he showed you this is who I am. Uh, you know, if you like me, keep me. And uh, and we decided that we liked him, so we kept him. He he had an excellent sinker all spring long. Really incorporated his changeup and 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 made much greater, I guess, more frequent use of it. And sequenced his fastball changeup quite well. He also elevated his fastball at the appropriate times when it was time to go get a strikeout. And I thought his command of all of his pitches in spring training, it, it exceeded my expectations. And frankly, I didn't know he had that in his bag of tricks. It was very impressive. Uh, he can give us multiple innings. He can step in as a spot starter. He is effectively the right-handed Wade LeBlanc. <laughs> so, you know, enter Wade LeBlanc. Uh, we had an opportunity to pick up Wade at the tail end of spring training. Uh, this is obviously post-David Phelps injury as we started to whittle down our staff and try to determine what we wanted out of that last spot that wasn't in camp with us. And we wanted to create depth, and, and Wade allowed us to create depth in multiple directions. He provides us depth in the bullpen, uh, a multi-inning long reliever. He provides us the potential for a third lefty who gives us the ability to create flexibility with other parts of our roster, whether it's with Casey Lawrence or James Pazos while Wade LeBlanc doesn't have the options to go to the minor leagues, others do, and that allows us to create some flexibility there. He also provides a lot of experience stepping in as a potential sixth starter or fifth starter, depending on where we are in our, in our I guess, progression during the season. We've talked about periodically wanting to go to a sixth starter if we have someone capable uh, of taking that and taking some of the load off of our, our top five. Wade has that. So it gives Scott and the staff a nice, versatile Swiss Army knife that we could use in a lot of different ways, and we know we trust the makeup and his willingness to throw the ball over the plate. We'll transi- transition to, uh, to tonight and to the start of the season a little bit. I am curious, Jerry, once we get done with this, and it's not even lunchtime yet, as the time we're recording this, it's just struck noon, where do you go from here? What does the rest of your day look like? I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I, I am curious from now until the time that the red carpet is rolled out, uh, kind of what opening day is like for a general manager. Uh, I'm going to go down and steam clean the red carpet. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to, right? No, I th- I, the, I'll spend much of my day with the media, uh, popping around, whether it's 710 ESPN, it's Root Sports, it is national media, it's popping in on a couple of radio shows. That's what my day looks like today. It's probably more an atypical day for me. Uh, I will probably spend less time downstairs with Scott and the staff today than I ordinarily would, just popping in to say hello. 
uh, I will make sure that I shake hands with our players to, to wish them luck as they get yeah, and as as will Scott, as will each of those coaches, and it's a long time practice. We'll call it uh, just walking around, make sure they see you. And I know for me, part of that was yesterday, and just visiting with some of the players, particularly the veteran players. Um, wanted to make it a point to congratulate Felix on on the upcoming start because I don't want to stop and talk to Felix today. Let him get his game sure, face on. Sure, good idea. And, uh, and I wanted to congratulate Ichiro because along with Wade LeBlanc, maybe the biggest surprise for us coming into and then out of spring training is that we got a new left fielder and, and, and it's a familiar face. And, and this is something I know he dreamed of and, and that he is going to be quite emotional about. And I have heard at least you know a suggestion that when he comes up for his first at bat that the, the roof might come down. But it's, a, it's an exciting day for me, probably a little out of the ordinary in how much time I'll spend in, with media versus on the baseball side. But, uh, but I, I love opening day. The pomp and the circumstances, it, 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 circumstances awesome. The bunting, yeah. Why, why would you not want to come to the ballpark when there's bunting and, and print on the field? That, uh, I think it's really cool, and I'm really looking forward to the start of it. I wish we were I wish we were facing somebody's fifth starter today rather than the best pitcher in the American League, but we'll, we'll find a way. Kluber versus Felix is a spectacular opening day pitching matchup. I mean, you think about Felix and the changeup and Kluber and that thing that he throws. Is By the way, is that He throws more, a lot of things. It's so. true. Is, in your eyes, is that more of a – a curveball or a slider at about 84-ish miles an hour from Corey Kluber? A slurveball. Uh, I guess so. Yeah, and it is it, what it is is a power curveball that sometimes takes on the shape of a slider, and uh, his ability to be precise with it is awesome. Uh, frankly, I think Corey Kluber is a great example of, of betting on pitchers to – their work ethic, the, the character, the focus. This is a fifth-round pick who was traded early from the Padres to the Indians who you know, made his progression to the big leagues. It was not a, a very early, quick transition from minor leaguer to successful big leaguer. You know, battled through and truly became what over the last five years has been you know, arguably the best pitcher in the American League. You know what's amazing to me about Corey Kluber is that Felix is two days younger than Corey Kluber, Tr- truly two days younger than Corey Kluber. And this, you know, we're talking about Felix and the Hall of Fame and trying to pave that path that way. 212 more starts than Kluber. Mm-hmm. Over 1,400 innings pitched more than Corey Kluber. And then if you, r- you really want to get ridiculous about it, you know, we talk about the mileage on Felix having broken into the big leagues as a 19-year-old. He's thrown 22,000 more pitches <laughs> from a major league mound than Corey Kluber. Of course, Kluber debuted as a 25-year-old, Felix as a 19-year-old, so that is the reason why. But it does put into even greater perspective the greatness of Felix for such an extended period of time. It really does. And, and, and you could take Felix, and it just so happens that Corey Kluber, you know, a, a multi-Cy Young Award winner, is standing on the other side today. You could take Felix and line him up across from the great pitchers of all time in their greatest 10-year stretches, and he's going to look pretty similar or favorable in that matchup, just what he was able to do over the course of a decade. And, you know, he got here so young, and so many people uh, over the course of that time probably didn't consider the, the magnificence of what they were watching without, without getting too crazy about it. He was awesome. And I know when you're lining up on the other side from Felix during the course of that time, 
It was ominous. You knew you were going to have to be on your game. And that's the feeling that I get from Felix right now is that he's that confident and he has that kind of air about him right now. And it was it was pretty obvious in the early days of spring training. He, he came to spring training and there was a different look in his eye and a different way about him that, frankly, I haven't seen in the time I've been here with the Mariners, but I saw a lot when I was sitting on the other side. A common question to players, do you have any goals for this season? As a general manager, do GMs set goals either for themselves or for their team? I always set goals. Uh, first, I mean, they want to win the World Series. That, that's that's a goal. And, you know, if uh, we, we don't really hide it when we talk amongst ourselves, we would like to do that. You know, we also need to be realistic about where we are in our development. I would like to improve our farm system. I would like to go out and, and for lack of a better way of putting it, I'd like to nail the June draft this year. It's a, it's, that's a goal every year. We want to make sure that we're efficient in how we make our picks, that they make sense, that we scout them well. Uh, I want to do well in, in efficiently spending our money on, on high upside talent in the July 2nd signing period. That's a goal. Uh, I want to make sure that our systems and programs are in place. And along the way, each time our major league team springs a leak and has a need, it would be my goal to, to step in and find a way to solve that need. That we as a baseball operations group should be able to do that. And, and that's how competitive teams stay competitive. When you watch tonight's game or any game, I'm curious, and this is going to sound like such a basic question, but how do you watch a Mariners baseball game? And I don't mean I watch it on TV or I watch it from the suite here at Safeco Field. How do you, Jerry Depoto, watch a baseball game? What are you looking at? There's, I would say what most fans are looking at. You know, Oftentimes you focus on the scoreboard. I don't ride the, the life and death of every win. You, you just can't do that over the course of a season. You have to have a more balanced approach. I learned that the hard way. You know, I think uh, Woody Allen, the, the great filmmaker, uh, just to be the first Woody Allen. I was going to say. Uh, uh, <laughs> drop on a podcast. He, he had a quote once, and I, and I remembered it through all my years playing, and, I, and I've really remembered it through you know, the, my years here. And he said, life is a series of peaks and valleys. The idea is to figure out how to stay at the peaks, avoid the valleys, and be home for dinner by six. Uh, you know, that, that is, we have to take that type of mentality going through a 162 game grind and, and understand that there are some times where you're playing for field position. It's not unlike a football game. Sometimes you punt for field position. Sometimes you aggressively go for it on fourth and one. And, and that's the way I watch a game is, you know, I'm watching pitch by pitch. I'm watching out by out and inning by inning. And once the game is over, I move past that game and watch the next game. You cannot let the the you cannot let the rhythm of the season start to drag you in a different direction. You have to focus on the present and what comes next. If you start looking too close in the rearview in a season, you can do that when the season's over. You can romantically look decade over decade back on baseball history, but in a season, you need to focus on that day and what comes next. Very interesting. Uh, that I, that sounds like it sounds like I'm speaking to a manager right now. I feel like Scott probably has the same way of looking at things. You have to, and you have to as a player. You can't get too attached, or you'll sink. Uh, I've I've been in that position where if you start focusing on what has happened, what went wrong in the previous start, in the previous game, in your previous thirty at bats, it throws you into significant slumps and you know the 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 goal is to stay at the peaks and if you're going to stay at the peaks you can't really lament what happened yesterday you've got to have a short memory and move on so I'm watching it the same way a fan is I just may I may turn off the volume a lot quicker than they do
I don't take offense to that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, before we get to some listener questions, I have a wheelhouse food story that might blow you away, Jerry. There's, I, I, I do enjoy being blown away, okay. particularly by food stories. So last, last night, opening day eve, this is the last chance for my wife, Heather, to like kind of get out, have a girl's night before the baseball season starts, and it's she's at the mercy of the schedule, right? So obviously, I say, yep, I'll put the kids to bed. I got dinner. I got it all handled. You go out, have fun. So she went to, with one of her friends, she went to our favorite sushi place, which I have referenced at least once before on the podcast. It's in Eastlake. Sushi Capo Tamora. Good Mariners fans over there. Exquisite sushi. For my money, the best that I've had in Seattle, although I know there are plenty of good ones. So... Heather and Emily are eating their dinner last night, having a nice evening. Uh, They're going to go to the ballet, actually, afterwards. And all of a sudden, to the table right next to them, Jerry, they hear my name said. Oh, now you're famous. Now, this is not a good thing, right, when you hear your name, your husband's name at the table next to you. And it's this guy who, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, and I hope he's listening to this, says... Yeah, Aaron Goldsmith, who does this podcast, The Wheelhouse with Jerry. I don't know why they had him do it, but he recommended this place as his favorite sushi place in Seattle. (laughs) That's fantastic. So I hope he's happier with the sushi than my hosting abilities or lack thereof. Uh, But I was thrilled to be driving people to get some good fresh sushi, if nothing else. See, that is the goal. I, I will say it yesterday, standing down on the field, I, I, it was brought to my attention that we are now national. This is not just a, a small little niche in, in, in the Seattle market. The Cleveland Indians people, none other than our, our opponents for tonight, were complimentary of the podcast, which I think is, you know, Rosie, one That's of the broadcasters, nothing, yeah, you know, Rosie texted me multiple times during the winter that he he listened to every podcast episode. I mean, he's a baseball guy. Maybe he was getting geared. Maybe he was doing his prep for opening day back in December. Uh, but no matter what, uh, it was pretty cool. And uh, I, I apologize to that gentleman for being for, for my presence on the podcast. But I am very hopeful that he had a good meal, if nothing else. He seemed very complimentary of you, Jerry. So. There's a, it, it's only because it's only because he had to be. He was talking to you. To be fair, to be fair. Let's get to some listener questions. Uh, this is Kyle in uh, Prior, Oregon. What have what have you and Scott been doing to prepare for the new mound visit rule in 2018? And have you guys told guys like Zanino and like like Robbie as well, who tend to uh, be the main two guys going to the mound? What, what have you told those two guys in particular? Uh, really nothing is the we've just told everybody to be aware and it's mostly you're familiar with the presence of a get back coach in the NFL yes that, that's <laughs> we now Manny Acta has been he's our get back coach he has to make sure that 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 Scott does not exceed the number of visits or that the players as they come in and visit or Z as he goes out to the mound that they don't exceed the, the number that, that we're allowed to or we're, we, we have to stay within and truth be told, why we haven't spent a ton of time on it is a little-known story. We, as a team, we average about half the number of visits as, as our allocated limit. So, you know, the league is, is putting a cap on the number of visits to try to get the game moving and, and create a, a quicker pace of play. We, with the Mariners, and generally the league in, in, in and of itself – 
are well below the, the, the limit. This is just creating a cap that oftentimes we don't even come close to until we see postseason baseball. And it is nonstop treks to the mound. So we're just trying to reaffirm the, the way the game is being played. Keep it going, guys. Keep it going. If you need a skywriter or you need, you know, we need a little pigeon with a, with a message on its foot, anything to make the game, you know, to move the game along. And, and, and I think it's going to work because, frankly, we've always worked within these parameters and it's not going to be new to us. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised because you all keep track and keep data on everything. So why wouldn't you keep track of mound visits before this was an actual rule? But what was the reasoning for you tracking this? Was it simply to see what the pace of your own pitching staff was like? No, actually it was the paranoia that we all felt after this, this rule was passed or, or once it was put into play. In spring training each year, Joe Torrey, who oversees the on-field activities for Major League Baseball, now a VP at Major League Baseball, uh, Joe Torrey and Peter Woodfork, another VP at, at MLB, go on a tour of each of the 30 clubs, walk them through new rules, the way it's going to be interpreted by umpires, etc. And I'm guessing that our staff was just like 29 others when they reacted like the, oh my gosh, they just changed the rules of the game. However, are we going to manage this? And we called MLB <laughs> and said, just out of curiosity, how many times on average do we go to the mound? And, and they told us right about the, the average in the league, which is about three and a half. And, you know, it's just not that often that you go out to the mound. And, and this is for a non-pitching change. So it's, a, it, it, it's, it's something that we were slightly surprised by. You're going to have the, the game where it's more of a football score. It's 12 to 10, and you're out at the mound all the time. And you're going to have a, 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 a night where James Paxton's cruising through eight, and no one's ever out there. And that's kind of the, the, the way the season goes is based on averages. We really weren't tracking it. We just called MLB and said, hey, I wonder, do you know the answer to this? And they gave us the, the, the background information, and I thought it was helpful to know because everybody was then able to, to take a breath and say, oh, it's, it's okay. This is normal for us. I'm excited to see Manny's grease pen in the dugout like, like a shipwrecked sailor keeping track of days lost on an island, uh, him marking each visit out there to the mound. I just want to know if he's going to use one of the like a, a riding, like a little cattle prodder, like a riding <laughs> leather, you know, and, and just just pop somebody if they get over the line. Hey, hey get back! You know. I, I mean, this. Do we know what if a if a player, let's say Mike Zanino, goes out to visit the mound, and he's unaware? This is like Chris Weber calling a timeout when he's out of timeouts, right? Like if he goes out to the mound and there's already been six visits, is it just as simple as the umpire just puts his arm out and says, you can't go out there? Is that, that what will happen? I think you'll see that happen. You know, the umpires for, for all the criticism that umpires take, they're, they're in the positions they're in because they generally exercise good judgment and, and they're trying to keep the game moving and they're not trying to get anybody hurt. So my guess is if you've exceeded the, the, your, your allotment of, of mound visits, they're just going to, hold you on the shoulder, they're going to hold Scott in the dugout or Stott in the dugout and just let them know, hey, you're there. The idea is that if you make it to the mound, if you make that visit, it's supposed to, it's supposed to result in a pitching change. I also don't think they're going to force teams into pitching changes if the pitchers aren't ready. But you know, that being said, we have to behave appropriately and not put pressure on the umpire to do the right thing because if we put the umpire in a position to do the wrong thing because we did it wrong is, is grossly unfair. Our next question comes from a Rafer Nelson in Ballard. 
And uh, this is paraphrased, but this is pretty interesting, Jerry. He wants to know, uh, Jerry, your plan seems to be to bolster the big league roster with athletic players while adding depth to the upper minor leagues, AA and AAA. And you did so while trading away low minor league players with the hope of drafting and developing well, mostly through college players as opposed to high school players, to replenish those ranks. If this is all right, is this a plan that you presented to the Mariners while trying to earn the job? So in other words, during your interview process, or did you come up with this plan of attack once you were hired and here at Safeco Field? Never thought about it before, but I'm doing it now. (laughs) (laughs) I think... uh, it really, Rafer nailed it. That is, uh, that is exactly what I proposed when I sat down with ownership, with Kevin Mather, uh, back in September of 2015. I believe it's what we've done. Uh, we'll see if it works. You know, it's a, so far what we have done is taken the lower levels of our system. We traded off future value uh, of a, a really to-be-determined degree in favor of now value. And part of the reason for doing that is is when we got here, or when I got here, with Kyle Seeger, with Robbie Cano, Nelson Cruz, and, and Felix Hernandez, you had four guys that were still putting up prime-type seasons who, you know, frankly, were making a lot of money. And we had to be creative in building a group around them that, that was, I guess, stronger in its constitution than the group that had been there before. There was a reason why we weren't winning, and it wasn't because our four best or highest paid players weren't good. That, and, and we were able to add around them, and I think you see it today as, as blatantly as at any point since I've been here. It's Mike Leake, it's Mitch Hanniger, it's, it's Ben Gamble, it's Gene Segura, it's Dee Gordon, it's Ryan Healy, it's Daniel Vogelbach. It's young, it's athletic, it's controllable, and generally affordable because it allows us to compete as best we can in the now while we, we continue to build up the low levels of our system because the players we were trading off, you know, the gestation period at that stage in the game is somewhere between four and six years. So we traded off value that should hit in four and six years, and by going back and really hitting it hard in the college ranks in the middle rounds of the draft. So from rounds, let's call it four through 40, you know, we are really striking hard in the college ranks. That is the way to replenish that system and effectively beat the clock. Uh, we have drafted high-end high school players, guys like Sam Carlson and Joe Rizzo over the last couple of years. Jorge Benitez in last year's draft, one of the great stories of our spring camp. He weighs about 150 pounds. When we drafted him, he threw 85 to 88. He came to spring training this year, and he's sitting at 95 miles an hour, as a, and he's a teenager. You know, Fun things will happen if you allow it to happen. But in the long term, the idea was to maximize our value today not ignore our value tomorrow, but just retool at the lower levels of the system, understanding that along the way there was always going to be at least one minor league affiliate, perhaps two in a given year, that we're going to suffer because we blew a hole in, in the, the minor league depth. And now it's on us over the course of the next three to five years to build that system back up. And, and as the major league team competes, we have a group of players who are all in their mid to late 20s who should be here for the foreseeable future. And over the course of the next three to five years, our payroll will predictably, you know, money will come off as some of these players graduate. And as they come off, the young guys should get there and create a, a greater rhythm. 
I don't know if it sounds mad sciencey, but it was it was on purpose. It's what we wanted to do. Hopefully, we've achieved it as best we can, and and it's and it's a championship model. Since you brought up the core and Kyle Seeger in particular, I am curious before we sign off here, as we referenced a show or two ago, last year Kyle admitted that his swing was never there coming out of camp and the numbers based on his previous years weren't there as well although still a good season by many standards how do you see Kyle right now because obviously the numbers would indicate that his swing is there as we have broken camp and are ready for opening night it was a terrific spring for Kyle Uh, what are you able to assess for Kyle Seager you know Kyle as much as any player I've seen in recent years but kind of along the lines of Rod Carew you know when, when, when I'm growing up Cal Ripken, who, uh, who had the, the pleasure to play against. Kyle's a tinker. He changes his swing a lot. Those two guys, you know, I just mentioned two of the, the great players of all time. They tinkered. They changed a lot. Uh, whether it was their hand setup, the, the form of their swing, you know, heavens knows how many different looks Cal Ripken had in the box. Right. It could be pit, pitch to pitch sometimes. And, you know, Kyle has that knack for changing. In spring training, he came in, and we saw, I'd say for the first two weeks of the A games in the Cactus League, Kyle Seeger looked like Ichiro, just spraying line drives to, to left field, left center field. I don't think he pulled the ball until we were 10 games in. <laughs> so it's just a very different look for Kyle, and I was wildly encouraged by where he was. And, and you know, that is to say that I know we're only hours from the, the, the next tinkering or, or swing change. <laughs> but, you know, what you do with, with a player like Kyle Seeger, he's – you know what you're going to get. You can press pretty firm on the pencil. He's uh, Kyle and Mike Leake are about as predictable as as major league players get. And you know, if if a down year is what Kyle Seager gave us in 2017, that bless us all. Sure. That's fantastic. And and you love players that are that predictable. They're so they make it so much easier for you to build rosters. And to that, for that, I'm appreciative of what Kyle does. But I thought he looked great in the spring. You know, I'm not banking on him winning a batting championship, but I am bat- betting on the fact that he feels comfortable with his swing leaving spring training because that's the way it looked. You saying, talking about Seager spraying a ball to left field made me think of the photograph that I saw of A.J. Hinch's four-man outfield. Have you seen this? Yes, I have. The left side of the infield is completely barren. I mean, there is not a soul over there. A shift on the right side, this is for a pull-happy power left-handed bat and a four-man outfield. What do you make of this? There's, I, I think it is, it is really gutsy. We, we, saw, we actually tried it in spring training. We, the Mariners, tried it in spring training with D.J. LeMahieu of the Rockies, who you know, simply just doesn't pull the ball on the ground. And you know, we, we played, a, we played a, a severe over-rotation where we didn't have anybody in left field. You know, our left fielder was standing in center, and everybody else was on the right side of the field. We learned it from watching the, the Houston Astros and the, the Arizona Diamondbacks. They were willing to take these these bold moves on spray charts that told you this is what happens. You can ignore the rest. You know, frankly, it takes a lot of guts to leave the field open because, it, you know, a simple ground ball to third base could turn into a double. And now you've got a guy in scoring position. I will be, believe me, I will be back in my office watching the tip off of the Houston Astros v. Texas Rangers because Joey Gallo is that guy. And I'm really curious to see what they do and, and how many grounders to short Joey Gallo can hit for, for doubles. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, for people who scoff at this idea, if you're A.J. Hinch, you'll let Joey Gallo hit that all day long. Right? All day long. 
Yeah. As long as he's not mashing him 450 feet to the third deck in right field. Far more ominous. I, I, I think you're, you would much rather – you know, we used to talk all the time when we played the Tampa Rays, and this is circa five, seven, eight years ago, with Carlos Perez. Yeah, uh, there's – or Carlos Pena, I'm sorry. Carlos Pena was severe pull, never hit the ball on the ground, was not – and, you know, Carlos, in the latter stages of his career, who, by the way, is a wonderful guy, but Carlos wound up kind of picking up the knack of just laying a bunt down over there and taking the single. And when they're, when a guy who is capable of leading the league in home runs just takes a bunt single and, and throws it down on the line, you're not unappreciative of the, of the, the, the impact because, you know, you – Generally speaking, with most American League lineups, you're trying to navigate around a power center that usually exists in the middle of the lineup. And I used to think all the time, when Barry Bonds came to the plate, you know, a walk or a single, I'm counting it as a small victory because at least I know where he is. <laughs> you know, the homer you can't really do anything about. And, and uh, you know, I, I think it's ingenious. You're, you're playing the odds. And I'm a, big, I'm a big fan, an advocate of the odds. If, if – History is telling you to try this. If the spray chart is telling you every now and then he's going to hit a pop-up over here, but stand over there and you're going to get him out a lot more. If you can convert 10% more fly balls into outs, why wouldn't you do that? I, 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 I think it's the right thing to do. I'll be curious to see how it plays out because I do know this about baseball people, having been one all my life. Baseball people tend to overreact to – the, the one outlier that tends to drive them out of their mind. If there's a, a trickling little ground ball to shortstop that turns into a double, and it won't be A.J. Hinch, it won't be Jeff Lunau, it's going to be the pitcher who threw the pitch that turns around, looks over there, sees no infielders, looks at the dugout with his hands outstretched, and if that pitcher is Wade LeBlanc, you know, he looks at the dugout, he shrugs, and he smirks. If that pitcher is... Justin Verlander or Felix Hernandez, it has a lasting impact that may need to create adjustment. So if the Mariners did something similar in spring training, is there a chance that we see something similar from the Mariners in the regular season? Yeah, I, I don't think it's impossible because, you know, our defense is roughly lined up by, you know, we look through the, the lens of, of analytics. We, we look at the metrics as we're starting to align our defenses. And then Emmanuel Cifuentes and our analytics people sit down and meet with Manny Acta. Manny is the one who lines our defense up. And I, I, I don't know if you know this of Manny, but in addition to the many qualities he has, he's a bit of a riverboat gambler, and, <laughs> uh, which made him an awesome third base coach. And it gives him – it gives him a lot of cachet with the players because players like to take risk, you know. It's fun. And Manny is is definitely on board with that. He's not he's not afraid to sell out to something that should work. And he's not he is not the one who's gonna take small sample and let it govern the next decision. He's just gonna roll it again. And uh, it's one of the things I love about Manny. So I do believe that if there is merit to it, if we find that there is more value and it converts you know, one more out out of 10 plate appearances, we are probably going to try it. And, and my guess is that Manny will drive the nail because he is not afraid to take that chance. Well, to put a bow on this, if you do that at some point this year, Riz is going to lose his mind. <laughs> we'll he would lose be the small mind. sample size outlier. Oh, just, I, please, can you do it? Make sure that I'll be there. I, I have to. You know what? He'd lose his mind more if 
the Indians put a four-man outfield for Nelson Cruz, and Nelly tried to pull the ball and didn't take the base hit to left. That's that's when Rico would would really pop his top. But he, but <laughs> but he wouldn't like the look of a four-man outfield from the Mariners' side of things as well. So he he would also lose his mind for that. Both Jerry would beat sensational radio so please I, make just, it happen. I would love to make it happen i will just make sure that that i visit with scott and manny if you were going to do it please send me a text so i can go sit in the booth <laughs> yes, we, got room. we got an extra chair for you all the time oh that's fantastic jerry happy opening day it's always a pleasure for you to carve out this much time on opening day it means so much to us and all the listeners so thank you enjoy today and hopefully we'll be celebrating a mariner's win we have bunting it's always fun Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.